Chapter Five of Jane Austen and Her Country House Comedy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jane Austen and Her Country House Comedy by William Henry Helm. Chapter Five The Impartial Satirist. What has woman done? Nature's Salic Law. Women deficient in satire some types in the novels the female snob the valetudinarian the fop the too agreeable man personal size and mental sorrow knightley's opinion of emma ashamed of relations mrs bennet the clergy and their opinions worldly life absence of dogma authors confused with their creations it is a commonplace of those who refuse to recognize the claims of woman to equal treatment in spheres of activity where man has long held a monopoly to ask what great thing has woman done in any walk of life one may talk in reply of sappho of joan of arc of george sand of george eliot of florence nightingale and two or three others and the retort if the greatness of these must be admitted is that they are the exceptions that prove the rule it is difficult impossible perhaps to upset the man who denies that anything of the greatest in art or literature or science has been achieved by a woman the list of women who have left an abiding fame as poets or novelists or painters is soon exhausted and there is not a name that can without reserve be placed among the rembrandts and turners the goethes and miltons the newtons and darwins of mankind maybe this deficiency is largely due to lack of opportunity since the gates were partly open to woman within the lifetime of those who are still not old she has done enough to change the opinions of many who held that rocking the cradle was a sufficiently active share in the ruling of the world for the sex that produced the maid of orleans and the lady with the lamp such justly conspicuous success as madame curie has attained in chemistry or mrs garrett anderson in medicine or mrs charlieb in surgery has compelled the admission that even if woman were by nature unfitted to reach the highest levels of intellectual achievement she at least could not be excluded from the learned professions on the ground of inadequate mental equipment nature's old salic law said huxley will not be repealed and no change of dynasty will be effected jane austen at any rate did not desire to repeal it she was among the most feminine of the women writers who have left an enduring reputation it is something of a paradox therefore that the quality on which her fame chiefly rests is one which is rare among women and in which most of those women who have attained success in literature have been conspicuously lacking satirical humour apart from physical disabilities want of humour is woman's heaviest handicap in the conflict of life humour is the principal ingredient of the philosophic temperament woman has courage in adversity she can suffer intensely without complaint but she rarely possesses the power of laughing at her own misfortunes it has been said and the saying might not easily be gainsaid that none of the great jokes of the world was made by a woman there are perhaps fifty great jokes 
spoken jokes of course are meant not those generally humorless things known as practical jokes and the good stories that are told and received as novelties are save in the rarest instances merely new editions of some wheeze which was already ancient when it was told to a circle of mead drinkers round a fire the smoke whereof or some of it escaped through the roof it is there is reason to believe no mere figure of speech that originally most of the basic jokes were told round the galley fire of the ark during the long dark evenings after the animals had been fed the decks swept down and the women had retired to their quarters thus may we account for the otherwise inexplicably large proportion of seafaring and animal tales among the mirth-provoking yarns of man a woman might never make a joke and yet have a keen sense of humour while on the other hand she might make many jokes and have no sense of humour at all most of the jokes that have any element of freshness are alive with fun and not with humour who is more humourless than the notoriously funny man jane austen is not often funny and seldom makes jokes in her novels her humour is of the essential kind which is so nearly akin to wit that it is often most identical with it wit and humour after all definitions are brothers who might be taken for one another by those who do not notice that the one has colder hands than the other if you want to laugh heartily you must not trust to jane's novels for a stimulant her characters laugh but little among themselves and are the cause of intellectual joy rather than of physical contractions in those who read about them when after re-reading many of the novels we sit and think over their delights many are the admirable bits of character drawing that come to mind after we have thought of the heroines the good people in the common meaning of the word do not come back to us so readily as those who if not bad are decidedly faulty the westons the gardeners the harvilles the crofts lady russell the john knightleys we recall when we jog our memories after elizabeth and emma and anne it is the appallingly tactless mrs bennet the odiously snobbish mrs elton the race-proud lady catherine the entirely selfish mr collins the lazy and thoughtless lady bertram the mean and tyrannical mrs norris the fatuous sir walter elliot these and their like who throng into view no writer not even thackeray has realized the female snob more knowingly than jane austen and mrs elton whose constant reference of all matters of taste to the standard presented by maple grove and the barouche landau renders her as diverting to us as she was insufferable to emma woodhouse a woman like this who is never betrayed into an unselfish action or a noble aspiration is happily not a common object in real life but there are enough of mrs elton's great-granddaughters about the world to exculpate jane from the charge of undue exaggeration emma herself has been called a snob and only the other day was described as perpetually acting with bad taste but emma's disdain for robert martin and her opinion of the degradation of marrying a governess were due to prejudices of convention which thought under knightley's influence dispelled mrs elton was a snob at heart who revelled in her own vulgarity of instinct 
if the snob is portrayed to perfection in mrs elton the valetudinarian is no less happily presented in mr woodhouse my dear emma suppose we all have a little gruel and for a picture of an empty-headed frivolous wife married to a rational and bearish husband the palmers in sense and sensibility have few equals as for miss bates she is without a serious rival as an inconsequential babbler and though we may be and ought to be as angry with emma for her rudeness at the box hill picnic as was mr knightley himself we must admit the ears of miss bates disjoined garrulity were some set off against that gross breach of charity and good manners lady catherine de Bourgh has been placed by some critical readers among jane austen's obvious caricatures is she not an entirely credible if happily rare type she is seen in a strong light in her attempt to bully elizabeth into a promise not to marry darcy with regard to the resentment of his family says elizabeth at last or the indignation of the world if the former were excited by his marrying me it would not give me one moment's concern and the world in general would have too much sense to join in the scorn and this is your real opinion replies lady catherine this is your final resolve very well i shall now know how to act do not imagine miss bennet that your ambition will ever be gratified i came to try you i hope to find you reasonable but depend upon it i will carry my point in this manner lady catherine talked on till they were at the door of the carriage when turning hastily round she added i will take no leave of you miss bennet i send no compliments to your mother you deserve no such attention i am most seriously displeased elizabeth made no answer and without attempting to persuade her ladyship to return into the house walked quietly into it herself thus ends one of the great scenes of jane austen a bit of duologue which gives us the natures and capacities of two remarkable people a charming clear-headed self-reliant girl and a blustering stupidly proud old woman sir walter elliot is the companion figure more highly coloured of lady catherine this man a vain fop who has not sense enough to govern his own affairs regards professional men as contemptible if necessary adjuncts of society and at a time when only the splendid services of our sailors had saved england from disaster he thus babbles about the navy yes it is in two points offensive to me i have two strong grounds of objection to it first as being the means of bringing persons of obscure birth into undue distinction and raising men to honours which their fathers and grandfathers never dreamt of and secondly as it cuts up a man's youth and vigour most horribly a sailor grows old sooner than any other man i have observed it all my life a man is in greater danger in the navy of being insulted by the rise of one whose father his father might have disdained to speak to and of becoming prematurely an object of disgust himself than in any other line one day last spring in town i was in company with two men striking instances of what i am talking of lord st ives whose father we all know to have been a country curate without bread to eat i was to give place to lord st ives 
and a certain admiral baldwin the most deplorable-looking personage you can imagine his face the colour of mahogany rough and rugged to the last degree all lines and wrinkles nine grey hairs of a side and nothing but a dab of powder at top in the name of heaven who is that old fellow said i to a friend of mine who was standing near sir basil morley old fellow cried sir basil it is admiral baldwin what do you take his age to be sixty said i or perhaps sixty-two forty replied sir basil forty and no more picture to yourselves my amazement i shall not easily forget admiral baldwin i never saw quite so wretched an example of what a seafaring life can do but to a degree i know it is the same with them all they are all knocked about and exposed to every climate and every weather till they are not fit to be seen it is a pity they are not knocked on the head at once before they reach admiral baldwin's age there have been such fools as sir walter elliot but as a type he is overdrawn jane loved the navy so much that her anger with those who disparaged it gave her pen speed and added colour to the ink anne's cousin william elliot whose attentions to her helped to revive wentworth's affection is more closely studied by the author than any of her heroes everything united in him good understanding correct opinions knowledge of the world and a warm heart he had strong feelings of family attachment and family honour without pride or weakness he lived with the liberality of a man of fortune without display he judged for himself in everything essential without defying public opinion in any point of worldly decorum he was steady observant moderate candid never run away with by spirits or by selfishness which fancied itself strong feeling and yet with a sensibility to what was amiable and lovely and a value for all the felicities of domestic life which characters of fancied enthusiasm and violent agitation seldom really possess anne however was not long in discovering grave defects in this outwardly model person she saw that while he was rational discreet polished he was not open there never was any burst of feeling any warmth of indignation or delight at the evil or good of others this to anne was a decided imperfection her early impressions were incurable she prized the frank the open-hearted the eager character above all others warmth and enthusiasm did captivate her still she felt that she could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless or hasty thing than of those whose presence of mind never varied whose tongue never slipped mr elliot was too generally agreeable various as were the tempers in her father's house he pleased them all he endured too well stood too well with everybody those who accuse jane austen of hardness have sometimes relied on her treatment of mrs musgrove's sorrow over her ne'er-do-well son long after his death to support this charge anne and wentworth whose mutual liking was just beginning to bloom again were actually on the same sofa for mrs musgrove had most readily made room for him they were divided only by mrs musgrove it was no insignificant barrier indeed 
mrs musgrove was of a comfortable substantial size infinitely more fitted by nature to express good cheer and good humour than tenderness and sentiment and while the agitations of anne's slender form and pensive face may be considered as very completely screened captain wentworth should be allowed some credit for the self-command with which he attended to her large fat signs over the destiny of a son whom alive nobody had cared for and then the author stops in her narrative to observe that personal size and mental sorrow have certainly no necessary proportions a large bulky figure has as good a right to be in deep affliction as the most graceful set of limbs in the world but fair or not fair there are unbecoming conjunctions which reason will patronize in vain which taste cannot tolerate which ridicule will seize she thus bluntly expresses what almost every satirist merely implies but she underrates her own powers the ordinary writer might or might not be able to describe the grief of a large bulky figure without offence to the ordinary taste genius could assuredly do this thing shakespeare with whom waitley macaulay and tennyson compared jane austen made one of his greatest characters fat and scant of breath but when hamlet says to his friend thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart we do not find it ridiculous that this too too solid flesh should be joined with a mind weighted with such poignant sorrow in any case whether she mistrusted her own powers or wanted mrs musgrove to be slightly ridiculous which seems more likely jane did not strive here to achieve what she pointedly tells us it would be beyond reason to expect the character of emma is described with unusual fulness but the description is placed in the mouth of george knightley her candid admirer who was perhaps not guiltless of the fault which fainald attributed to mirabel of being too discerning in the failings of his mistress mrs weston miss taylor that was has said that emma means to read with harriet smith emma has been meaning to read more ever since she was twelve years old replies mr knightley i have seen a great many lists of her drawing up at various times of books that she meant to read regularly through and very good lists they were very well chosen and very neatly arranged sometimes alphabetically and sometimes by some other rule the list she drew up when only fourteen i remember thinking it did her judgment so much credit that i preserved it some time and i dare say she may have made out a very good list now but i have done with expecting any course of steady reading from emma she will never submit to anything requiring industry and patience and a subjection of the fancy to the understanding where miss taylor failed to stimulate i may safely affirm that harriet smith will do nothing you never could persuade her to read half so much as you wished you know you could not i dare say replied mrs weston smiling that i thought so then but since we have parted i can never remember emma's omitting to do anything i wished there is hardly any desiring to refresh such a memory as that said mr knightley feelingly and for a moment or two he had done but i he soon added who have had no such charm thrown over my senses must still see hear and remember emma is spoiled by being the cleverest of her family 
at ten years old she had the misfortune of being able to answer questions which puzzled her sister at seventeen she was always quick and assured isabella slow and diffident and ever since she was twelve emma has been mistress of the house and of you all in her mother she lost the only person able to cope with her an unhappy condition of most of jane's heroines is that they are of necessity ashamed of their nearest relations anne elliot felt his trouble keenly when at length she and wentworth decided to take the happiness which she had refused years before anne satisfied at a very early period of lady russell's meaning to love captain wentworth as she ought had no other alloy to the happiness of her prospects than what arose from the consciousness of having no relations to bestow on him which a man of sense could value there she felt her own inferiority keenly the disproportion in their fortune was nothing it did not give her a moment's regret but to have no family to receive and estimate him properly nothing of respectability of harmony of goodwill to offer in return for all the worth and all the prompt welcome which met her in his brothers and sisters was a source of as lively pain as her mind could well be sensible of under circumstances of otherwise strong felicity one can readily understand her regret her father was a fool her elder sister elizabeth a slave of convention with few rational ideas of her own and her younger sister a neurotic egotist who grudged to others the simplest pleasures if she did not feel able or disposed to share them fanny price was ashamed of the slovenly home at portsmouth to which henry crawford so inopportunely penetrated elizabeth bennett's mother was of course more nearly impossible even than lady catherine had so pointedly suggested for her defects were far worse than those of obscure birth this terrible woman who kept her elder daughters constantly on the rack by her fatuous chatter who always said the wrong thing who had no desire for her children's welfare but to marry them to anybody with money if possible or without it rather than not at all made one of her usual quick changes when she heard the surprising news of elizabeth's engagement to darcy she began at length to recover to fidget about in her chair get up sit down again wonder and bless herself good gracious lord bless me only think dear me mr darcy who would have thought it and is it really true oh my sweetest lizzie how rich and how great you will be what pin-money what jewels what carriages you will have jane's is nothing to it nothing at all i am so pleased so happy such a charming man so handsome so tall oh my dear lizzie pray apologize for my having disliked him so much before i hope he will overlook it dear dear lizzie a house in town everything that is charming three daughters married ten thousand a year oh lord what will become of me i shall go distracted this was enough to prove that her approbation need not be doubted and elizabeth rejoicing that such an effusion was heard only by herself soon went away but before she had been three minutes in her own room her mother followed her my dearest child she cried i can think of nothing else ten thousand a year and very likely more tis as good as a lord 
and a special license you must and shall be married by a special license but my dearest love tell me what dish mr darcy is particularly fond of that i may have it to-morrow this was a sad omen of what her mother's behaviour to the gentleman himself might be and elizabeth found that though in the certain possession of his warmest affection and secure of her relation's consent there was still something to be wished for of catherine morland we are told that her whole family were plain matter-of-fact people who seldom aimed at wit of any kind her father at the utmost being contented with a pun and her mother with a proverb having given us this little aperçu of mr and mrs morland the author morsuo adds the information they were not in the habit therefore of telling lies to increase their importance nor of asserting at one moment what they would contradict the next if we seek in our memories for scenes of particular excellence we shall recall with renewed pleasure the rehearsals mansfield park the encounters between elizabeth and mr collins and elizabeth and lady catherine pride and prejudice the second and last proposal of wentworth to anne elliot persuasion the picnic at box hill and the dance at the crown emma in all of these the spontaneity of the narrative the vitality of the talk and the vividness with which the circumstances are realized with the smallest amount of description show the author's art in its most delightful vein it is often in little touches generally satirical that jane austen reveals the characters of her people lady middleton whose reserve was a mere calmness of manner with which sense had nothing to do mary bennet whom when her sisters visited her they found as usual deep in the study of thorough base and human nature and had some new extracts to admire and some new observations of threadbare morality to listen to the gushing louisa musgrove who declared that if she loved a man as mrs croft loved the admiral she would always be with him nothing should ever separate them and that she would rather be overturned by him than driven safely by anybody else mr allen a country gentleman of fortune who did not care about the garden and never went into it and general tilney poring over pamphlets when he ought to be in bed blinding his eyes for the good of others who would never benefit in the least by his exertions the heartless and humbugging mrs norris whose plentiful talk about helping her poor child-burdened sister ended in her writing the letters while others sent substantial assistance these and many other entertaining people live for us largely from such casual peeps into their natures and sentiments jane austen rarely describes a man or woman as possessing qualities which are not justified by the evidence she offers almost the only notable exceptions are mrs dashwood of whom we are told that a man could not very well be in love with either of her daughters without extending the passion to her but who does not herself give us any reason to regard her as other than an affectionate well-meaning and injudicious person and captain wentworth who is stated to have been witty but who usually manages to restrain his wit when we happen to meet him 
the many parsons of the novels are at once too steady and too prosperous to be in accord with either of the types of eighteenth-century clergy most frequently conveyed by the literature of their period they may not have done much for their parishioners beyond preaching to them once or twice a week and sending them soup occasionally but they set them good examples by conducting themselves decently and soberly of their views we know little indeed few things are more remarkable in these novels in the light of later fiction than that almost complete absence of any reference to dogmatic religion to which attention has already been drawn you may hunt through them all and hardly find two definite statements that except to see what the vicar's bride was like any of the characters went to church we know that the parsons preached but whether there was any one to hear their sermons we are usually left in doubt in fact as dr waitley puts it the author's religion is not at all obtrusive his favourable view of jane austen's influence may be contrasted with robert hall's of maria edgeworth's in point of tendency i should class her books among the most irreligious i have ever read she does not attack religion nor inveigh against it but makes it appear unnecessary by exhibiting perfect virtue without it it has frequently been said that the atmosphere of jane austen's books is church of england and this is in a sense true she assumes that the squires of whom she writes are adherents of church and state much as a provincial clergyman wrote recently in his parish magazine it is generally taken for granted that church is the only possible religion for an english gentleman we meet with no romish priests or methodist preachers not so much as a member of the society of friends but on the other hand we meet with no one who talks against faith it was a period when the church itself had become apathetic when pluralists abounded and when many rectors lived comfortably on their great tithes far from the parishes which they left to the care of curates who were often worse off than their gamekeepers a young man went into the church if there was a good living to be had just as he went to the bar if his uncle was a flourishing attorney or into the navy if his friends had influence with the board of admiralty many parsons if they were well-to-do and fond of society did not even wear any distinctive dress one meets vicars and curates to-day in summer-time wearing green ties and grey tweed suits and even a bishop has been known to abandon his episcopal uniform when he was away on a holiday but to take an instance from the novels catherine morland who has met henry tilney at a dance in bath and meets him again at the pump-room or elsewhere does not know he is a clergyman until she is told the church was merely a profession for most of those who entered it did henry's income depend solely on his living says general tilney he would not be well provided for perhaps it may seem odd that with only two younger children i should think any profession necessary to him and certainly there are moments when we could all wish him disengaged from every tie of business the most conscientious clergyman in the austin comedy is edmund bertram who really seems to have wished to do his duty and thereby damaged his chance of marrying mary crawford the scanty reference to the observances of religion in the novels bears on the worldly life of the age as we know it from those who were of it and saw it at the centre of activity london society dr warner george selwyn's chaplain 
who attracted large congregations by his eloquent preaching and who was an avowed skeptic away from church who toadied the rich and noble and told stories that delighted the duke of queensbury was no rare type of the clergy of his time and we may be pretty certain that jane austen's mr collins who was not at all likely to tell an improper story himself would have found it very difficult to believe that so exalted a personage as old q was unfit for the society of clergymen jane frankly admitted that she knew too little of literature philosophy and science to allow her adequately to draw the character of a scholarly and serious parson the comic side of the character i might be equal to but not the good the enthusiastic the literary such a man's conversation must be at times on subjects of science and philosophy of which i know nothing or at least occasionally abundant in quotations and allusions which a woman who like me knows only her own mother tongue and has read little in that would be totally without the power of giving according to her brother and her nephew jane was better educated than she here makes out knowing french and a good deal of italian whether we believe her or not about her literary and linguistic limitations we can have small doubt that she knew very little indeed about science and philosophy in spite of being so much of a philosopher in those days when cuvier was bringing his genius in paleontology to bear on the recovery of lost types and preparing a way for darwin whose own grandfather was bravely aiding in the clearance of paths in hitherto trackless jungles of prejudice and obscurantism science was scarcely regarded as a decent subject of conversation before ladies in country drawing-rooms and it never obtrudes itself at hartfield or at mansfield park if we may read through every word of jane's novels without discovering any expression of dogmatic belief we may equally find no direct evidence unless in that one story of eleanor and willoughby of acceptance of the chilly deism which had eaten so deeply into the intellects both of laymen and clergy the unrest both moral and physical which had spread from paris from holland and from switzerland over the whole of western europe at that time finds little place for its fidgeting in the families to whom we are here introduced people with the rare exceptions of a wickham or willoughby are born live and die in peace with the world and in general harmony with their environments admirable as jane austen's picture of country life in house and garden are they are not to be accepted as literal transcripts she was before all else an artist and the more an artist is devoted to finicking reproduction of exact details the further is he removed from art almost every author if he writes with sincerity must draw his own moral portrait in his best work in a literal sense there is no reason to suppose that novelists often give us studies of themselves in any degree comparable with the self-portraits of rembrandt velasquez madame vigee lebrun or the moderns in the uffizi gallery sometimes of course as in villette and delphine an author reports episodes in his life almost as they happened and it is certain save in the rarest cases that something of an author's mental process is reproduced in all his creatures bad as well as good though he is more likely to show his own temperament and experience in a prominent and sympathetic character than in any other 
very few writers follow the example of milton of whom coleridge declared his satan his adam his raphael almost all his eve are all john milton the common mistake a mistake so obvious that we may wonder at its continuance is such a close identification of the author with any one of his creations thus because vivian gray is disraeli himself disraeli is to be credited with the strange experiences of that uneasy hero among foreign politicians and card sharpers and because jane eyre is charlotte bronte charlotte bronte must at least have wished to unite herself with a wild man whose wife had gone mad there were no doubt readers of goethe's faust who ignoring the legend thought the author had bargained with mephisto and it goes without saying marianne dashwood is not within hearing that hamlet is shakespeare such arbitrary reasoning may account for the general confusion of frankenstein with the creature that he made among the widest traps indeed for those who love to see a romana clef in every novel is this identification of the author with one or other of his characters some people have convinced themselves that cassandra and jane austen were the originals of eleanor and marianne dashwood such an idea could only be held by those who had not seen jane's letters marianne sentimental romantic disagreeable in a quite serious way and usually inattentive to the forms of general civility could not be jane and as certainly not cassandra as we know her and while eleanor the patient long-suffering girl might in some ways represent either of the austin sisters she is very far from being a portrait yet if neither eleanor dashwood nor marianne is to be described as a likeness of jane the elder sister in her philosophical submission to what she believed to be the loss of her lover and the younger in her literary tastes and her impatience with people who talk without thinking may fairly be regarded as in part reflecting the author's personality none of her heroines is jane but there is much of her also in elizabeth bennett and emma woodhouse and a good deal in anne elliot though she admitted that anne was too nearly perfect to be altogether after her heart the simple little souls of fanny price and catherine morland so dependent on the direct assistance of others in the formation of their feelings are in very small degree expressions of the author's temperament we may i think regard emma woodhouse as the nearest approach to a portrait of the artist who painted her but nearest is a relative superlative many people do not care for emma a strong expression of recent disapproval was quoted a few pages back jane austen anticipated objections i am going she said when she was beginning the book to take a heroine whom no one but myself will like much whether or not we may see in emma a good deal of jane herself we may fairly be certain that none of her characters is an intentional copy of any one in the circle of her friends and acquaintances she herself declared her opinion which tallies with all that we know of her that the introduction of living people as actors in a work of imagination is a breach of good manners and that propriety apart 
she was too proud of her characters to admit that they were only mrs a or colonel b how far she made use of individuals in the composition of such strongly marked figures as mrs elton mr collins and sir walter elliot we cannot of course know the point for what it is worth could have been better elucidated if miss austen's circle had been less far removed from the world wherein the raxalls the grenots and the grevilles listen and watch we know that whatever the degree of similitude disraeli's rigby offers a recognizable likeness to croker dickens boythorn to landor stevenson's weir of hermiston to braxfield excepting jane austen's denial of the deliberate introduction of real persons in her novels we cannot tell how many of her hampshire acquaintances served intellectually for her pictures of country society as the maidens of crotona served physically for the picture of helen by zeuxis we may be certain that all unconsciously they gave her of their best each according to his means End of chapter five